warm welcome to um, our keynote session. So as you know, these um, every first Wednesday of the month, the OMF, we're, rather than offering a, a practice together, we have a, a keynote from um, a, a group or an organization or a person who's um, very prominent in mindfulness and the talking around mindfulness related subjects. And these have been going since 2020, when in the early days of the COVID pandemic in the UK, and we continued them every month since then. Um, and we've been very lucky to have a very wide range of speakers. And um, if you'd like to listen to any of the previous keynotes, you can find them and I'll just post in the chat. Um, you can find them here at this address. And so, Anytime you want to listen to any of those, they're there for you to have a listen to. But tonight we have um, three speakers um, and today's session is, is about um, mindfulness and young people and, and, and what ways forward. And to, to lead the speech for that, um, we have probably the preeminent organization with working with young people and mindfulness, the um, Mindfulness in Schools project. And we have three speakers. We have Emily Slater, the CEO, Richard Burnett, um, one of the founders, and Ben Chalwin, who is um, the program coordinator, if I've got that right, Ben. And um, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time introducing people because I know Emily wants to do that. But we will have a time, we hope, at the end to have some questions. So if you do have any questions, can you please um, put them in the chat and Susan will um, um, collate them for us and we'll have a time for some questions at the end. But I know that um, Emily, Ben and Richard have an awful lot to say, so I'm going to be quiet and hand over to them. So over to you, Emily. Thank you so much, Jem, for that introduction. And uh, thank you very much to the OMF for this opportunity to explore mindfulness in the context of children and young people and those working or caring for them in particular. And that will take us on a journey looking back since Mindfulness in Schools project began in 2009. And in a moment, we'll hear from Richard Burnett, who's our uh, chair and co-founder of the organization and we'll also then look at developments currently and thoughts for the future and Ben Charwin who's our head of training will take us through that so really I'm just the warm-up act and I just wanted to say mainly hello I'm I'm the new girl in the team I've been at Mindfulness in Schools project just uh, just over a year and I thought as as a sort of introduction and a little taster for what we'll hear more about and see demonstrated, I think tonight, is just to just to give you a sense of what it was that attracted me to Mindfulness in Schools project. There's something about fresh eyes sometimes uh, and holding on to, to those things. And what brought me into the organization, I think is what we will hear more about actually in this session. Um, and, that is around the thought, the care, the expertise and integrity from the charity working to ensure that mindfulness can be accessed by and tailored to children and young people. And I think we'll 
many of you on here will, will already know a bit about this. Some of you may be, may, may be a bit newer to how do we take mindfulness and make this work, make this attractive to children and, and young people. And, and this organization, as Gem said, has been at the forefront of, of a lot of that. And that's definitely something that attracted me. The other thing is the, the enormous potential through the case studies and class impact data collated ac across all, all these years of what mindfulness can offer for this age group. And I think particularly in these times, and the third thing that really attracted me was the potential reach geographically, both across all corners of the UK that Mindfulness in Schools project is, is, is working in. And also the organisation has been at the forefront of developing partnerships internationally, particularly for mindfulness with children and young people and those working or caring for them. We won't have time to talk about everything um but if 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 anyone here is is interested in in hearing more if you if we run out of time to answer your question at the end we'll put in chat in a moment uh an email address please please do get in touch through that if you have thoughts about partnerships how we can work with you wherever you are we'd we'd love to hear from you and i guess just just finally, uh, uh, from me, before I hand over, just a, a huge, huge thank you for all of you in, in joining us, I'm going to say tonight in the UK, it might be a different time zone wherever you are, and I hope it will, I hope and I know it's going to be a fascinating insight, um, both into the work of our charity, as well as the art, or maybe the science of tailoring mindfulness skills and approaches to the child, young person, or the teacher, parent, grandparent, whoever is working with or caring for that for that young person. So thank you, what a privilege and honor. Um, and I'm going to hand over to Richard, who won't be a stranger to many of you. And uh, as many of you all know, is, is kind of had the vision, a lot of inspiration and still has and, and, and gave birth not on his own, but um, with others to, to what became Mindfulness in Schools Project back in 2009. So Richard, you're going to talk us through some of that history, some of the overview, some of your thoughts now, um, and fasten your seatbelts, everyone. Uh, I look forward to it, and we're here for questions at the end. Brilliant. Thank you, Emily. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone as well and to the IMF for, for giving us the opportunity to speak this evening. Um, I should say that I am, I am co-founder and chair of MISB, but I'm also still very much a school teacher. I taught four periods yesterday. I teach Spanish. I teach uh, religious studies. I teach um, pastoral education. Um, I taught three periods this morning. And that, that for me is really important that I'm still in the classroom trying to teach this stuff. Um, and I suppose from that perspective as well, so much seems to have changed in teaching, um, in mindfulness over the last decade, but also in teaching. And I, I know we are not the only country where the education system is really beginning to creak. Um, and if you're not in the UK, you may not be aware that today was the first day of you know, significant industrial action in the UK, about 100,000 teachers on strike. But as well as that, we have increased child poverty. We have increased child absence, a sort of hangover from, from COVID. 
um, mental health of pupils in schools, mental health of teachers, um, senior leaders in schools. Things are quite tough. Um, but in other ways, and I suppose that's what I want to be focusing on as well, there are, I think, certain enduring truths about teaching, about teachers, about mindfulness, which I think it's important not to forget those. And I sometimes wonder whether because of the changes in the mindfulness field, we, we, we can lose sight of some of those enduring truths and we, and we need to return to them in some ways. Um, so um, being a school teacher, I thought I would just show you um, what I am going to be talking about first. So these are, I hope you can see that. Uh, actually, no, hang on. I want to do that. Okay. Oh, no, no, all going wrong. Tech breakdown already. Good stuff. Let me just do that again. Share screen. And I'm going to share that one. There you go. So have a read of those. And just to give you a sense of where I'm going. Um, but before looking forward, I suppose I'd just like to begin by turning back and taking you back to sort of 13 or 14 years ago when MISP began. Um, so it's 2008 uh, and at a school's wellbeing conference, there was a, a, a speaker there, Professor Felicia Huppert, who at the time had set up the Cambridge Wellbeing Centre. And she said, um, she asked the assembled, mostly school teachers, um, is anybody interested in this thing called mindfulness? Because I've been reading about this uh, and it's interesting, some good early studies coming out and I'd like to test it. Uh, I'd like to test it. I'd like to, to write a curriculum that we can test with kids. Um, if you're interested, stay behind. And two people stayed behind. And that was me, um, a school teacher at that point, and also Chris Cullen who I think many of you will know, who was also a school teacher at that point. Um, we have both been doing a lot of mindfulness at that, at, at that time. I think we're probably in the, I sometimes call it the mindfulness junkie phase when you're getting as much mindfulness practice as you can and doing lots of retreats. And it's, it's, it, it's really, um, you know, it become a very important part in, in our lives. But we were also school teachers in secondary education. So I think we had a pretty good feel for or at least I think we had a pretty good feel for what flies in the classroom, what works in the classroom. Um, and Ben, will, you'll be seeing from Ben later on that we have curricula for age groups from three years up to 18 years. Chris and I were focused more on year 10, which was 14 to 15 year olds. And I think that's partly why we began as MISP with a secondary curriculum. It just so happened that Chris and I were secondary teachers, not primary ones. I don't think it's any indication of where it's most relevant or or, or, or how, or, or you know, what works well in what context. But I guess my first point is that what we were keen to stress at that point is exactly the same now, which is that 14 to 15 year olds in classrooms are not culturally, educationally, or indeed hormonally predisposed to be meditating. Um, asking them to be quiet, uh, and focus on their breathing is not something that they would necessarily choose to be focusing on. Possibly there's more of a willingness to have a go now. Um, I think partly because of the mental health crisis in young people. I think partly because mindfulness is a word that is more out there. Uh, they might've heard about it through their parents. They might've got the sort of Spotify promotion of Headspace, which might've made them have a go. But generally speaking, you're still dealing with 14 to 15 year olds in classrooms. You haven't chosen to be there and might frankly rather be someone else, somewhere else. 
And the reason I think that's important to stress is because many of you will have experienced mindfulness or even taught mindfulness with adult groups who are volunteers who have chosen to be there. And that is very, very different when you're teaching to what we call kind of conscripts uh, in a classroom context, you know, plastic chairs, desks, strip lighting, the whole thing. Um, and I haven't found any way of communicating how different it is teaching mindfulness to children than it is to teaching adults um, than the, a little clip that I'm going to show you. This was the first minute of the first lesson that I filmed um, teaching dot B, which is a curriculum we'll come on to. Chris and I were filming our lessons because we wanted to watch each other teaching to learn. Um, and also we were thinking we could use the good bits in the training and actually what's ended up happening is it's more when it went ter terribly wrong that we've used those clips in training as illustrations of how not to do certain things. Um, but have a look at this. There's very little sound here. So don't worry if you can't hear it. Um, but this was at the beginning of a lesson before the rest of the kids turned. I don't always wear scarves, but it was teaching in a shed and I was very cold. Um, so I hope that gives you some sense of, uh, of what we were what we were up against and what all school teachers are up against in every single lesson they teach in any subject across the country. Um, but what Felicia wanted a curriculum um, and so we thought we would um, write one and it was an adventure and at the heart of it was a practice called dot B. Um, we thought we I thought we'd do a little dot B. We called it that because it was two characters that you could very quickly text to somebody else using the old kind of Nokia keypads. And we were trying to prompt kids to encourage other kids to practice or just stop and notice. Um, and the dot is very simple. The dot stands for stop. So just inviting you at the moment, wherever you are in the world, just to pause for a moment. Um, the spirit of that, we reflect by putting a little question mark in the dot, the traffic line, which is an invitation to notice, an invitation to be curious about whatever sensations you're picking up from this thing we call a body at the moment. Your feet, hands, sensations of sitting. Any sounds you are picking up wherever you are? Uh, maybe even the whirring of the device that you're using to watch this, if you can hear that, if there is one. Encouraging you to just feel grounded, feeling the feet on the floor. Noticing any sensations of contact, of touch, of pressure. 
And the B was a helpful letter because first of all, it stands for breathing. And again, an invitation to notice sensations of breathing in the next breath, where are the sensations most vivid for you, most accessible to you when you're breathing? But the B is also B. It's a nod to being mode as opposed to doing mode. It's a nod to, to JKZ, John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness being, being alive and knowing it. Um, so dot B is just stop and be, stop and exist. Um, notice that you are alive and notice what is going on. And whilst just coming out of that very short practice, um, and I suppose reflecting on the uh, reason why we chose that was because it was encouraging kids to remind each other to practice. And I would say that is definitely an enduring truth. The technology has changed dramatically since 2009. We have, this was the dawn of the smartphones, but there were no smartphones yet. The ubiquity of social media that we have now, the algorithms that are hooking children and young people to content. It makes it harder for those two little characters, for that, that dot and that B to, to cut through the noise of digital media. But what hasn't changed is the value of peer-to-peer -peer relationships and recommendations. If children and young people are saying to each other, hey, this works, try it. And particularly if you can get YouTube influencers to start talking about it with their peers, um, start encouraging people to have a go, then we might see a sort of shift in acceptability and take up that um, might augur maybe a little a bigger cultural shift in schools than we, we are currently seeing. The other thing that hasn't changed is that for young people and children to be to try something new, to give something a go, they need to be engaged by what you're teaching them. There needs to be a sense of play and a sense of fun. And I do worry a little bit that we drifted from that, the importance of that sense of fun. Um, and but when I say we, I suppose the context of mindfulness in education generally, because, um, and first of all, in those early days, we're going to take you back, it was so fun. It was very engaging and an adventure to, uh, you know, Chris and I would very, very nervously share our early drafts with JKZ and with Mark Williams. And we felt like what we were doing was mindfulness heresy. You know, we tried raisins, but they'd put them up their nose or flip them across the classroom. We'd, we, we had to reframe that. So it was Maltesers for the pleasant and chili, red hot chili for the unpleasant. Meditation, we, had, we reframed the lying down body scanners meditation, saying that the purpose of it was deliberately to help them sleep, which was not the original intention of the body scan. Stress, we thought, how do you teach how to respond and befriend stress? We thought, let's create stress in the classroom. Low-level stress, manageable stress, but get the adrenaline flowing a bit. And so we came up with lots of games where you could safely bring stress into the classroom and then work with that um, as material for the practice. Um, I should mention at that time, I don't know if anybody on this call ever met Chris O'Neill, um, he was a close friend of, of Chris and I, but he was an absolute genius and his irreverent sense of humour 
certainly permeated those early drafts of Duck B. Um, but we were serious. And, and my next theme was sort of possibilities and parachutes. We were serious that whatever we taught had to be light touch, but engaging. You know, yes, we were only dipping their toes in the waters of mindfulness, but it had to feel different and fun because our ambition was to connect. It had to be memorable. We wanted to sow the seeds and those seeds, um, Ben will talk about, the sort of seeds of possibility. It wasn't designed as a therapeutic intervention. And I think this has sometimes almost by attrition been overlooked because the metrics used by the research community to measure the effectiveness of mindfulness at schools were inevitably clinical metrics drawn from MBSR and MBCT. But using those metrics to measure the kind of engagement you're trying to get in the class and the purpose of it, making it memorable, is like, as I said, in, I don't know if you've read, I wrote an article for mindful.org. I said it's like trying to measure gas with a slide rule. You're not, it, it's not, that's not the reason, that's not the purpose. What we're trying to do is sow seeds. And the, I've got lots of anecdotes, if we have more time, I could tell you. But the most striking one recently was I was emailed by a 33-year-old um, who I had taught French GCSE to in 20, 2005, who'd given up their previous job, had gone into teaching, was doing their PGCE, and wanted to write it about mindfulness. I, I wasn't even teaching a course at that point. I was just doing the odd talks about, as I called it at that time, meditation. But it had clocked. It had sown a seed. And that's all we're trying to do. And I don't know how you measure that. But it, 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 we, we, as teachers, we're constantly inspired by those examples. And I thought um, Kabat-Zinn talks about mindfulness being a practice that weaves the parachute so that it's there when you fall. But I think our ambition in secondary certain, certainly is for children and young people just to know that there is a parachute. They might not weave it very much, but just to know that there is a parachute available to them and for them to know that that gives them possibilities is such an important um, thing for us to be able to communicate to them. So one significant change, sorry about the pace of this, I'm just conscious I really want to, want to um, uh, share as much of this as I, as I can in this short period. One significant change since those early days has been a, a far greater awareness of trauma sensitivity in the classroom. Now, obviously we were guiding pupils in how to befriend the difficult, turn towards the unpleasant, um, roomy, guest house, non-reactivity, all of that. But we were much less aware in those days that even a relatively short practice, well-taught, well-guided, could take a children past what Trelevin would call outside of their window of tolerance. Um, in my experience, there was usually one or two or three kids in a class of, and this is still the case, in a class of 20 to 30, for whom paying attention simply to the breathing can be too strange and too uncomfortable for them to turn towards it it does push them away too far out of their window of tolerance. When teachers are trained now, we encourage them to make sure there are options, there are get outs, there are exit strategies. But how do you know that's where they are? How do you know that's what they're experiencing if there is very little what we call inquiry? I'm thinking you'll probably know what inquiry is, but it's the conversations, the discussion that happens after the practice, which I think is probably the great difference between the, the, what I would call a great mindfulness teacher and a, and a good one is, is the quality of the inquiry. But in a classroom, 
you can't really do that sort of inquiry because you don't want to do what Susan Kaiser Greenland, she wrote this first book on my, one of the earliest books on mindfulness, The Mindful Child. She said, you don't want to reveal the soft underbelly of the child. They're going to go out into the corridors, out into the playgrounds, into the next lesson and chat and gossip and tease. So you can't really do that quality inquiry. But in classrooms now, we have websites like Mentimeter, which certainly in secondary and depending on schools policies on devices and mobiles, straight after a practice, you can do a kind of digital inquiry, which is tremendously effective. And it has the last two years really changed the way I am teaching in the classroom. Um, and if I show you these slides, you show them, um, I've scribbled these out, they're not visible, but they, they get their phone out, their device, menti.com, they go to that and you set a questionnaire and anonymously, they can immediately give you feedback on what the question here is, what part of the body do you find most accessible? This was after lesson one, where we focused immediately on that playground of attention, the hands and the fingers. And you can see where their attention is, is, is going. And it's a word cloud, it shifts with who, who ticks what box. Um, I'm conscious of the, of the dangers of evaluating any mindfulness practice, but it's still helpful to know these people found it calm, pleasant, sleepy, relaxing. But look at this, one person found it unpleasant. This is all anonymous and I'm seeing this and they're not, but I'm in the class with them and this is two minutes after they've done the practice. Now this is where it gets really interesting. I was bored. What did you notice? I fell asleep. I love this, adolescence discovering language. I'm normally discombobulated, but in this, I was ice cold relaxed. And then this one, wonderful um, miss, miss um, is this malapropism? I can't remember what these are called. It was extremely hard to hold my consecration for more than 30 seconds, a wonderful mistake. But look at this one in the middle. This doesn't just work for me because all it does doesn't just work, this just doesn't work for me because all it does is bring up horrible memories and it makes me feel so angry and depressed. So suddenly I am aware in my class that there is someone for whom a very short practice, just quite a short silence, a very simple practice is struggling. And that gives me, and there are lots of ways you can then progress and in confidence find out who that person is, um, have a discussion with them outside of the single lesson and manage the risks by giving them opt-outs for the whole lesson, if your school can accommodate that, or even just during the practices with this particular kid, we agreed that actually for him just to doodle, he likes doodling, that when I was doing the practice, he'd have a piece of paper and he'd be doodling. Um, two more thoughts to end with um, about what's important going forward. Um, one is community. I think it's absolutely key. The MISP hub, as we call it, continues to be a living resource and community for MISP trained teachers. Um, and we, we, we are very proud of the sort of service we give there. But I think, and, and do Emily speaks passionately about another kind of community, which I know she's really keen to, 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 to get off the ground a bit more, is mindfulness organisations coming together. Because most of our organisations are charities, and these are challenging times. And we all depend on each other culturally to some extent. Uh, if one of our organizations takes a battering in the press, to some extent, we all do. The, the word, the field, if, that if the word mindfulness, if that takes a hit, we all do. Um, I was interested to see in the Times 2 the weekend before last that they chosen not to use the word mindfulness in the headline. Instead, they chose the word meditate. And not only did they choose the word meditate, they mentioned the word Tibetan. So whilst not Buddhist, it was referencing 
um, connotations, which probably a few years ago you couldn't do. The word meditate is probably still too laden with sort of more sort of spiritual hippie connotations to be to be really credible in opinion formers in schools. But I think that's probably changing. But if it's changed for MISP, it's changed for the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation, it's changed for Youth Mindfulness, it's changed for the Mindfulness Network. And all of us need to remain culturally relevant so we can support each other in that way. Final thought, and I think this is perhaps, this could be more of a personal view than a MISP one, but I think courage will become an increasingly important value for our organizations going forward. Whether that's because of the proliferation of apps and shorter practices, it feels like mindfulness is shallowing out. The majority perception is that it's very light, and I think it's hard to see it flourishing if that superficial, more transient perception of mindfulness endures and it's being used with hamburgers and shower gels. All of us on this call know how much more than that it is. We are all aware, we have many of us, I suspect, had our lives changed by this. There are deeper and more beautiful undercurrents of mindfulness that have remained in the background, unspoken and to some extent hidden. And I guess I wonder what we can do to bring these out, to articulate these, to give these a cultural voice and expression and how courageous we're prepared to be in the mindfulness field and how radical we're prepared to be. Um, so an invitation, I suppose, a thought to end with. Um, thank you for, for listening there. I'm gonna pass you over now to Ben. Um, ben came into uh, MISB's training orbit about a decade ago. So this is not new to him either. Um, and now whilst he's formally our head of training, there's very little that Ben hasn't done for or with MISP at one time or another. And crucially, before joining us, Ben was the deputy head in a mainstream primary school. Um, so he has first-hand experience of the pressures that teachers come under. Ben, over to you. Thank you, Richard. So I'm sitting in the background, <laughs> listening to what's been said. So I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey through MISP's curricula. Um, as they've been and kind of the progress from dot B because not everybody on the screen will have seen them. I know there are some people um, in the meeting who have trained with MISP and some very familiar faces, but for many of you, it might be new. So I thought it'd take us on a bit of a journey through the, the curricula so far, um, with the end point being our most recent curricula, our curriculum aimed at three to six-year-olds. You know, And as many of my friends ask me, how on earth do you teach a four-year-old uh, mindfulness practice but out of that there's been some learning that might hint at, at directions going forwards um you know i know this was built slightly as what's coming for the next 10 years of, of mindfulness within education honest answer we don't know yet but there are some directions that we think things will probably travel in uh, and one of those is we're looking very much at a pathways approach for taking somebody perhaps from their first experience of mindfulness um, to actually fully embedding things in an educational setting within the constraints of the, the educational system you know, and the dynamics of different schools. So I'm going to move into sharing a PowerPoint. So can somebody give me a wave if you can see the, the MISP logo? Thank you. So just to say, if I look shifty and I'm looking sideways, it's because I'm operating over three monitors. So if I'm looking for reactions from you, it does appear as if I'm ignoring everybody because um, I've got the PowerPoint in front of me. So 
The starting point, dot B, that Rich has already mentioned for 11 to 18 years old, year olds. Um, when I first came across this, I thought it was one of the most brilliant days of introduction I'd been on, and then was somewhat dismayed to find out that there wasn't actually a curriculum for primary-aged children, um, which is how I've kind of got involved with MIST. So I've been there through seeing a, a lot of the trajectory of development. So but for those of you familiar with eight-week adult mindfulness courses, you'll probably recognise some of the themes from that within these, these slides. So these are the cover slides of the Dot B curriculum which unlike a lot of adult mindfulness uses PowerPoint, you know, hopefully as a starting point for learning and for discussion, but also to just promote curiosity. Um, the laptop in the top right of the screen there hints at the fact there's a website that students can access practices and animations um, from the curriculum. So if you wanna find out more about this, have a look on MIST website, have a look on YouTube. And if your curiosity is piqued about what meditation might be, if you put meditation into YouTube in the search thing, it will come up with the entire practice. And I say that as somebody, when I was training as a mindfulness teacher, did actually fall asleep during a body scan on the opening day, I think just because of the tension that was around. But certainly practice, a lot of students I've worked with have found useful uh, and very popular with my own children who I experimented on with extensively. I'm not sure of the morality around that when I first started training, but. They're 18 and 20 now, and actually the 20-year-old still comes back to meditation and now he's at university. So as Rich was saying, lots of similarities as well with how we might deliver mindfulness, but the inquiry is often what we might call more horizontal. So it's about perhaps normalizing some experiences, what are we experiencing that's the same, but also recognizing difference rather than drilling into that soft underbelly that Susan Kaiser Greenland named. And also, Maybe another different difference from a, a lot of adult mindfulness courses is there's quite a lot of neuroscience taught within Dot B, uh, and indeed Pause B, which I'm going to come on to now, which is aimed at seven to eleven year olds. And when I was delighted when that was launched as a, a primary deputy head at the time, um, but a lot this was also developed working with a neuroscientist. So I'm not sure whether you'll be able to see the white writing there because the contrast isn't great on this on this slide. But again, Pause B following a similar arc to dot this and the trajectory and also to a traditional journey through an adult mindfulness course. And just to say, if you're a teaching colleague, I mean, this isn't too much of a sales pitch, but if anybody's interested, there are free samples available on the website, so do have a look. And then from that, um, or following that, MISP developed something called Dot B Foundations, which is an eight-week course aimed at, at school staff or parents or carers, but adults, within an education setting where dot B or pause B are being taught. That was my first experience as an adult mindfulness teacher. I taught, I think it was around 50 of the staff from the primary school I was deputy at, and it had a, a massive impact on the culture of the school, um, including teachers walking around going, I am feeling my feet um, in the midst of the, the dreaded phone call and things. But it, it gave us a shared language and understanding, even though I was the only actual pause B trained teacher at the time. Um, school mindfulness leaders are, is how I did that and how many other people do it in terms of, of training to teach Dot B foundations to staff, to adults within the school community. And then in 2017, when um, Miss were ahead of the curve, pioneering again in taking an eight-week course online, um, which was obviously useful learning when it came to 2020. Um, but this was also done to increase accessibility 
and really recognising, as I was alluding to a moment or two ago, about the potential impact of this on the climate within the school. And then Dot Breathe, which is for kind of transitions curriculum, and is also intended to be a taster for adults at the beginning of their journey. So there's an obvious gap here. And I say this is somebody who started their career as a reception teacher. You know, what if you're not old enough to be doing pause B? Um, so I, the responsibility fell to me to, to try and produce a mindfulness curriculum suitable for three to six year olds, which I must say caused much hilarity among ex-teaching colleagues and things like, how are you gonna do that? And it became very obvious early on that we might need a different approach. So breath is off an anchor. Thought it'd be a really good idea during the innovation phase to go and actually talk to some four and five year olds. You know, how do you know if you're breathing? I like rainbows. You know, so that that probably illustrates the, the challenge of developing this. You know, where do you go with it? So out of this came dots. Um, it, it required a very different approach. So the first thing that became obvious was that we needed to think about actually what are we trying to, to teach here? You know, what are the themes? And so they seem to fall under awareness, connection and emotion. So awareness, including the experiences of tension, anchoring, grounding, grounding, being present, embodiment, focus and concentration. So lots of familiar things there. Connection, okay, so those of us who are parents, or those of us who are spent time with young children probably recognize they can be a little bit egocentric at times, you know, and can be very focused on themselves. And in developmentally in reception is obviously playing, often playing alone and then playing alongside before playing collaboratively comes. So connection really looks at that interconnectedness with others and with the wider world, social awareness, relationship skills and empathy, you know, and these attitudinal stuff, compassion for themselves and for others showing kindness and expressing gratitude. And then a lot around emotion. Actually, there's a, a paper on this website from our Hong Kong partner um, measuring the impact of DOTS in a young age group. And one of the big findings was around increased ability to regulate emotionally. So really developing emotional literacy. So those themes were put together, but very much seen as interconnecting. And rather than being taught discreetly, it was more a thematic approach covered throughout the 30 sessions of DOTS. So this is one of the, the, the big moves away from what we had previously in perhaps the 10-week course or the 12-week course. So little and often seemed to work better. You know? So it was developed into 30 sessions, each session lasting around 10 to 20 minutes. Um, and within all of those, what we call have-a-go practices which is familiar language to anybody who's trained with MISP, in that it's not homework, it's something to have a go at, to experience. So this, and again, apologies, depending on everybody's broadband connection speeds, this might be a bit blurry, but that's the arc of the 30 sessions of, um, of DOTS. So why am I showing you about the stuff about, about younger children? Um, the reason for this is that the little and often approach without PowerPoint, so it could be taken outside or it could be dropped into tutor time, it could be dropped into a passing moment in the playground. It, uh, it possibly increases accessibility. And also, although Miss was always said, and as Richard was alluding to, we adapt things for those we work with, 
Flexibility is really inbuilt into the DOTS model. There's a lot of importance about finding um, the language appropriate for those that you're, that you're working with, that you're teaching, finding ways to express things that land well with them, and also finding examples that are relevant to them. So what we're currently looking at, and this is the where next bit, is alongside the existing curriculum, which you know, there's a lot of positive class impact data around, and, and like Richard, you know, as a teacher, my, my own anecdotal evidence from ex-students, including one coming into Sainsbury's um, during lockdown and just shouting, pause B at me. And in what would best be described as probably not a safe personal space, but there's somebody many years later, you know, still associating me with that, but also remembering some of the language of that. So we're really looking at ways to work with what's already there, but impossibly in different delivery formats. So taking advantage of the technology that Richard was sharing, working with our students where they are, and really just that drip feed of little and often being a possibility. And if you are delivering one of the, the more, I was going to say traditional, which seems wrong, but I guess after this length of time, we could use the word traditional, but that, that 10 session or 12 session curriculum is a way to embed it outside of that um, within the, I was going to say school day, but this is for preschool as well, really any education setting. This should probably rename itself, but if we had mindfulness-based approaches in schools and other educational settings, it could be a bit of a mouthful, but winding things out. And to, to support that, and I'm looking at the clock, I reckon I've just got time for stamping feet practice um, quickly from DOT. So this is from session three. I know for at least one person I can see on the screen now, they know this one. You could stand up, but you can do it sitting down. Okay, the intentions with this session, explore physical sensations in the body, investigate the breath and experience what it's like to direct the attention. So all we're going to do, I'm going to say three, two, one, go, and you're going to stamp your feet on the ground as vigorously as feels appropriate for an adult body at this time of the evening, if it's the evening. And if you're in a house with people underneath, maybe not as loud as I might do here in an empty building. So you're just going to stamp your feet on the floor. And then when I say stop, there's just going to be an invitation to stop and to notice. Right. Are we ready? For anyone, I should have worked in children's TV. I need some crowd participation now. See a few nods. So three, two, one, go. Just stamping your feet on the floor. Most of us are feeling the need to wobble our heads as well to show everybody else on the screen that we're doing that. Get a bit and then stop. Okay, and then just see what you notice in your feet. Okay, you don't need to look at them or pick them up, but what are you noticing? Fizzing, tingling, buzzing, vibrating. You know, I see a few people having a yawn, so attention might have moved to a yawn. Um, back to the feet. And maybe you might want to notice your breath if you're able to. You know, what's the breath like? Mine's sped up slightly. In fact, I feel quite re-energised. So that's stamping feet, a very short, quick practice. And then just because I don't want to eat into question time too much, just to mention something that we're about to launch called the Pathways. This is really a framework for how you could bring mindfulness into an education setting. Okay, so a lot of the research is sometimes looked at teachers in the early stages of teaching or teachers in isolation, something MISP has been aware of for a long time and has been making moves to develop further is a more coherent pathway or journey for somebody from that moment of just exploring the possibilities to introducing mindfulness to developing a model for it in-house and then really embedding, but also perhaps step five, and this is the next 10 years, but 
providing a model of sustainable mindless, mindless? <laughs> well done, model of sustainable mindfulness that can be shared with other settings. Maybe as a misspeaking school setting, but that notion of seed dispersal. Richard mentioned earlier about we're all about planting seeds. When you plant a seed, you don't pick it up every five minutes to see if it's growing because it tends to kill the seed. In fact, you might forget about it and it blooms years later into something, you know. But in a horticultural time, how can we help these seeds of learning to disperse out through, through the education community? So I would love to take you through more practices, but I think it's probably time for questions. But just to finish with Richard's mentioning of possibilities earlier, this is a slide from the intro to Dot B to get students, young people interested in what are the possibilities for me? And really for the next 10 years, you know, it's all about different possibilities, some familiar and probably ones we've not even discovered yet. So thank you for me and the dots character. And I'll come out of share screen. And I think Jan, we're back to you for questions. Yes, you are. <clears throat> um, thank you. And thank you very much, Ben and Richard and Emily for some really fascinating insights there into mindfulness and teaching young people. And uh, I liked I liked your video there, Richard, of the pitfalls. <laughs> it's so lovely to, to see mindfulness in, in the real there in the classroom. So thanks. Uh, please put in the chat your questions as they come through. But as, to, as a start, I have some questions here. Um, and one of them is around, and I'm not sure who, who to, <laughs> excuse me, aim this up. Of, excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, so maybe pop it in the chat, Jeff. <laughs> it's quite a long question. So <clears throat> this is for the other end of education, at university level. Um, and this questioner has asked, at university level, we see a strong inner critic which seems to develop at early years. Um, is there an emphasis between becoming aware of... Uh, becoming aware of this voice and developing a strategy on how to counter the inner critic um, that maybe mindfulness can bring mindful attitudes of compassion, gratitude and kindness. Um, who, who is best? I, I'm happy to speak to that. Yeah. Jump in over, Thanks, ben. over Richard. So, and again, these are firing off thoughts randomly and this might be my own view rather than this view. But for, I think for a lot of adults, and myself included, so my degrees in philosophy, I think rationality and ability to think, you know, hold that in high esteem. The big learning the first time I did an eight-week course was thoughts and not facts. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I hadn't realised that, you know, which seems a ludicrous thing to say now. Um, so there's something around that for me, and particularly this sowing a seed early on about how we relate to thinking. We've mentioned attitudes there around compassion and kindness. But the ability to, and metacognition is a word often used and often described as thinking about thinking, which feels a bit circular, but meta actually meaning to be above or to step back from. But just that awareness of thought. 
And I think, and I'm going to talk about my own children now, if that's okay, for a moment or two. So around my time um, coming into mindfulness, my wife was very ill. Um, it made her very sick. My daughter was nine at the time, saw a lot of this and developed a phobia of sickness. Uh, and it was quite a, a live thing for her. She was a very reluctant dot B participant at secondary school with me. I'd like to say that she was there voluntarily, but I was really in the school trying to teach because I thought it might benefit her. About a year later, um, she said to me, I, I, I'm feeling really anxious um, because I am thinking that I might be about to be sick, but I'm not going to be sick. It's the thinking about it that's causing the anxiety. Come forward a bit now, she's at uh, 18, getting ready to go to university. She's far more able to identify that critical voice and the pressure that she's putting on herself as a result of having developed that skill set over time or that awareness. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. I don't know, Richard, if you want to come in on the back of it. I was just going to say something really simple, which is that it's a great relief to children and young people that, that they're not the only one who has that voice in their head. I think they kind of, when somebody names it, I think, oh yeah, that narrative, that 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 voice that's talking you through your day, um, you probably never thought whether other people have that. Um, and just the fact that it's named as an inner critic, uh, making people aware of the nature of that inner critic is in itself, I think, quite a, a release for children and young people. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I've got some other questions here now as well. And one from from Dave about as a an ex secondary school teacher trained in mindfulness, how could they be useful in to school communities? Emily, is that one? Well, Ben, you're probably both better. I can, I can come in. I mean, I, I yeah. would say get in touch with us, and we might be able to channel that. Um, one of the issues around for a lot of schools at the moment, post pandemic, is around having the funds available to train people properly in the delivery of mindfulness or or um, to be able to pay for an external teacher to come in so there is we're, we're very interested in trained people if there's some space for volunteering if not it can be as simple as offering up some kind of a taster session i'm looking sorry i'm getting distracted by the chat to offer up some kind of taster just to actually prepare the ground or, or to <clears throat> sow the initial seed so that there's definitely potential there but probably worth exploring via email um, if that's possible Dave I was just going to add yeah we'll we'll pop that email back in the chat Dave and do get in touch and, and I think there's something for me that we've touched on tonight about even just explaining what we mean by mindfulness or doing it even away even without mentioning the word mindfulness if, if you're in a school or connected to a school and you have experience and can transmit some of that passion then that in itself is is a great way to then in, encourage people to 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 do more and and come to organisations like like ourselves. But Dave, do do get in touch. Thank you, Ben. The email's there. Thank you. Um, this one from Gronya, and, and I think this is just for how do you go about introducing the concept of mindfulness? And I, you know, quite often and often have this sort of oh, mindfulness. I've done that and it doesn't work. Right. How do you get over that? Can I say, sorry, Ben. No, so I'm checking. We're delivering training at the moment. Um, but Richard, do you want to go first and I'll jump in on that? Well, I was just going to say, I think, first of all, it might not be the thing for them. 
I mean, I think we've got to accept that. It might be that simple things like physical exercise um, are, you know, going for a walk, doing some sort of physical activity is massively important for mental health. So I, I think it is possible that it isn't the only thing for them or it isn't a good thing for them. I think the great risk, and I don't know if, if, if you, if anybody else on the call has experienced this, often what you find is that they've just been taught really badly. And we see this time and again, that, that they've been taught something called mindfulness, which someone has picked up from a you know one minute mindfulness book, or they've done a few headspace practices and they think they know what they're doing and it just isn't the right thing. Um, I think I like what Jane said about you have to meet young people where they are, because I think if you're calling it mindfulness, have you tried mindfulness, you might immediately be getting barriers, which you just, you don't have to mention the word. You could just do, you know, you could, you could just draw their attention in multiple ways to their feet on the floor or their breathing or just noticing things. Um, Sound is often a good place to start. You know, um, it's more expansive. It's more open. Um, But I think ideally what, what, what makes them tick, try and identify what, what is, what is their thing? What is their mojo that you want to rediscover and try and work with that, whether that the inner chimp stuff, you know, whether that's sport, music, film whatever find a clip a song so many ways of finding ways but but it might not be right is the other option sorry ben now i I was going to say actually we we very deliberately don't introduce the word at the start in in the individual um curricula so pause bit comes a while so often which it's a pause b session um, and I'm chuckling because I once had a head teacher really helpfully write Mr. Chow in mindfulness on the board, but he used two L's um, whilst writing mindfulness, which I did think was quite delightful. So it depends how loaded the word is, but there's definitely ways around and being able to work with that. And I should say, I don't really like the word mindfulness. I want to name that. I don't really like it. It's it's about the body. supposed not to be controversial. Sorry. <laughs> it's about the body as much as the mind. And, and I think that's important. And there's that lovely in dot B, we have the Chinese character for mindfulness. And it's much more beautiful because it, it, it's about heart and it's about now. And those two things coming together, now and heart. And that feels much more like mindfulness to me than mindfulness. Thank you. And this next question, I, I know I'm just going to, um direct towards ben with his training head of training hat on and can you comment on the training of teachers who teach mindfulness how to ensure the caliber and standards of the teaching and this is from someone who's a trained mindfulness teacher for adults and as you know good practice guidelines rigorous training program ongoing cpd etc etc i'm smiling at jim because we both know that's a really tricky one to answer so you look at, and I say this is an ex-school leader and a couple of students of acting headship, you can have people go through all the way through a normal teaching pathway to be a classroom teacher and you can end up with teachers who are more competent at the end and less competent at the other end of the spectrum. And so it is with mindfulness teaching, you know, operating particularly in the school context. The approach that MISP takes is we deliberately not, at this stage, put lots of competencies on the equivalent of MBI tap because it would put off a lot of people who are dipping their toes in and doing it as part of a wider delivery. So the approach we take is we ask that people have done an eight-week course themselves because, you know, lots of people probably do run mindfulness sessions in school just by buying Finding Peace for a Frantic World and then go, oh, I'll just try a body scan for 
20 minutes. So eight-week course themselves, develop practice. Um, certainly from my own experience, actually that adults practicing mindfulness has as big an impact in a school setting sometimes as, as actually delivering to the young people might be because we are actually embodying what we're, what we're also advising them to practice themselves. And then with MISP, it's a case of a thorough multi-day training in how to deliver the curriculum. And I've got to say, right, so as a primary school teacher, I use lots of different curricula um, and I probably pinch bits from here and there. MISP's uh, Paul's B curriculum was the only thing I ever delivered in its entirety in a primary school setting. So it's very well written. So you're trained how to teach it. And then there's ongoing development after that. So we run question and answer surgeries, we run various um, skills workshops. So it's development over time. And it's trying to hold, and I, I know, well, I'm looking at Nikki on the screen at the moment. I know there's people in this community that are very passionate about mindfulness that actually just want to go on developing. So we, we work with, and we, uh, you know, there, there is an MBI TAC adaptive for schools, lots of people we use, and it is something we're looking more as well if people would like to go on to develop further about how they could possibly be involved with something competency assessment a bit nearer or aligned to what we might know in the adult world can i can i just add very very quickly on on that also i think it goes back to something richard said about the the purpose of what we're doing that unlike working with adults where there's a there's a great amount of depth we, we can do some of that with young people but as you've seen that video from from Richard and I think it's really important that this is about introducing young people even to the concept of mindfulness to know that that parachute exists so competencies and supporting our, our teachers on that journey and doing everything we can is really really important but potentially is, there's also some differences that's maybe a bit controversial but differences between what we're doing in an adult environment and what we're doing with, with, with young people in terms of how do we equip our teachers to do that light touch introduction to get young people passionate to go on and do that in their, in their lives, hopefully. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody um, for just such a wonderful overview of the mindfulness for young people and the way in which it can help and the ways forward. And I just want to finish very briefly with this um, observation from Judith about her daughter um, who had trained in mindfulness. And then there was a very challenging time for the fact that the, the house had been burgled and tools had been stolen. And the daughter said she spent the day focusing on her feet and she was okay. And she said, this for me was evidence of the impact of mindfulness. And it's just what you were talking about, Richard, it's you know, mindfulness for in the future, remembering that there is something there to be of help. So thank you so much. Um, thank you very, very much. And, and please, um, um, remembering that uh, these sessions are on every, um, First Wednesday of the month and all the other weekdays, we have our 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. sits um, UK time, of course. But can I just say thank you very much to Emily, Richard and Ben for a really marvellous um, talk and really fascinating insights into mindfulness and in young people and those that look after them. So thank you so much. <laughs>